Rupert. Thank you for tuning in to the Now Naked Humanity, Once the Meaning of Everything podcast. Today's episode number 33, and I have on Jonas Kaplan, who's a cognitive neuroscientist who specializes in belief, narrative, and how humans basically cope with life in general. So this conversation is really fascinating. We cover a wide array of topics. Uh, Jonas is a brilliant thinker, a very smart researcher who understands really deeply the implications of his work and uh, the findings in neuroscience. And, and that's all very important, you know, very interesting. Jonas and I discuss, like I mentioned, we talk about beliefs, we talk about how hard they are to change, we talk about values, and basically what we end up sort of circling around all the time is this idea of identity and this idea of how important it is for us as humans to tell stories. We talk a lot about narrative, it's how important it is for us as humans to tell stories about who we are and to fit in and to... Uh, be a part, be a significant part of the broader whole. Uh, and we tell narratives about other things too. And we tend to get very attached to them. And so we, Jonas and I have a really lovely conversation about uh, the processes in the brain that underlie all of this functioning and uh, what, what sorts of things we can do about it. And one of the things we talk about is, of course, uh, meditation, which is really interesting. And I learned about Actually, it was enlightening for me to learn about some of the processes and uh, outcomes or effects of meditation that I, I hadn't really understood in a particular way. So uh, this was an enlightening conversation for me. I hope it will be for you. I'll read you a little bit about Jonas. Uh, he is an assistant research professor of psychology at USC's Brain and Creativity Institute, which is a fantastic institute, by the way. Uh, he uses functional magnetic resonance imaging, which is an fMRI uh, machine to study how the brain works. Uh, he's the co-director of the Dana and David Dorn's Life Cognitive Neuroimaging Center. You can also find Jonas on Twitter uh, at Jonas underscore Kaplan. Uh, and I believe from there, you can find a couple of articles uh, that he's written. And on his website, you can get to some of his published articles uh, on neuroscience that are really enlightening and actually quite uh, good, or they were fun reads for me anyway last night, um, so far as scientific literature goes. So I will leave it at that. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in. I'm very excited for this chat. So here we go. I uh, will bring on Dr. Jonas Kaplan. Hi, welcome Jonas. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much. I was just dying to ask you, and now I get to ask you on air. Um, a little bit more, if you could tell me in your own words, it's different from reading an academia.edu page, uh, a little bit more about what you do and its context and, and the projects that your sort of your community or your lab is working on? Yeah, sure. So I'm a cognitive neuroscientist, and that means I basically study how the brain works. And for me, uh, I've always been really interested in consciousness, in uh, self-concept, and sort of where our experience of being uh, alive and, and being human uh, comes from. And that, that has involved looking at 
um, how, how the brain gives us those things, how the brain gives us our humanity and our consciousness. And um, so that's what I study. I study a lot of different things that kind of circle around those topics. And that has, that has involved looking at um, how the brain makes meaning out of the world and where our beliefs and values come from. Um, and my main tool is functional brain imaging. So I use fMRI, which allows us, you know, using a combination of crazy physics and technology, we can get some read on what's going on in the brain while people do various psychological things. So that, that's what I do. Right. So you see, you can see different brain regions being more active than others, right? And that's how you infer what's happening in the brain. Yeah, that's right. Basically, what we're picking up on with the MRI machine are changes in blood oxygenation because the oxygenated blood is a slightly different magnetic signature. So uh, we can see when the blood oxygenation changes. And luckily for us, those uh, changes tend to be correlated with changes in neuronal activity. So it is a, a bit of a chain of inference. Um, and by the time we get the kind of pretty colorful pictures of what's happening in the brain, that everyone's familiar with seeing, it's gone through a lot of steps of inference and statistical analysis. And so it is a kind of indirect measure of brain activity, but it's still a useful one. Very cool. So, all right, we could dig into this self and, and consciousness and all of this in a number of different ways. Perhaps uh, you mentioned how we make sense of things and how we come to believe things. Uh, could I know that that's, this is a huge topic, but is there a way you could sort of start to summarize or poke into how it is that we end up believing in certain things? Yeah, that is a big question. So I, I guess there are a lot of different ways that we end up believing in things. And, you know, the brain is very good at learning and creating models of the world um, because uh, the brain is very interested in predicting what's going to happen in the future. We don't really like to have surprises. And so from a very young age, the brain starts to take in information and use it to build these models of the world that allow us to predict what's going to happen. And what happens is that those predictions become... Uh, important filters on how we actually experience the world. And there's some evidence that our experience of the world is more related to the kind of top-down predictive process that the brain does, where uh, we're making predictions to try to understand what's going to happen. Um, more related to that top-down predictive process than it is to bottom-up information coming in. And a lot of us think of, you think about your visual system, and you look out in the world and you see all this information, there's light coming in uh, to your retina we're not experiencing just a read-off of that information on the retina, where it's an interpretive process where the brain is constantly making guesses about what it is that we're seeing. And our consciousness really has a lot to do with that kind of guessing process, that top-down process. And um, we see that in a lot of different ways. The brain kind of creates a reality for us. Uh, a simple example from the visual system is the blind spot. You know, we have this gap on our retina where we're not getting any information. and We don't experience it at all because the brain fills in that gap for us. That's a perceptual example, but the brain sort of fills in our uh, interpretation of the world in general, our story of what's going on. And I've actually been, become really interested in story because I think story and narrative is kind of a, um, a, a mechanism that the brain uses for organizing all of the information we have of the world. And one, one of the main sort of sense-making processes that the brain has is narrative. And when we think about ourselves, you know, the self is, is another complicated issue, but we can kind of break down the different aspects of ourselves. And one of the um, main breaking points is the distinction between our experience of the here and now, of our, uh, our self at this moment in time, you have a feeling about where your body is in space. And maybe you weren't aware of it until I just called your attention to it, but you can kind of feel the extent of your body. You can uh, feel the 
um, all of the things your body is doing, your breath, um, your movements. And that's an aspect of yourself. But then there's the self that extends throughout time, where the brain kind of pieces together all of our experiences of ourselves into some kind of consistent identity that persists across time. And the form that that takes is really a story. It's an narrative. It's an autobiography, right? Like you asked me when we first started this conversation, what I do, and I have to kind of go into my memory to retrieve that story of, of what it is that I do. And so uh, when we look at what's happening in the brain, when people think about themselves, and when we look in the brain, when we ask people to read stories, if you're experiencing stories, we see very similar brain systems that serve those two functions. And so I, I really have come to believe that narrative is one of the main mechanisms of meaning making the brain has. Mm. Um, and so this narrative function, uh, how is that something that can play a role? Like, is it something that performs functions that are good for us? Is it something that performs functions that can hinder our functioning? Does it do both? Yeah, I think it's both. I mean, the, the good side is that it serves a, um, explanatory function. It's very easy to compress a lot of information into a narrative or a story. And that's why a lot of cultural uh, information is transmitted through stories. If you think about all the stories we tell kids to teach them about morals, it's much easier to uh, tell the story of, you know, the boy who cried wolf than it is to go on a sort of detailed explanation of, of what the consequences of, of lying are. Um, so it's a good way of packaging information and communicating information. Um, and it's a good way of making predictions. On the other hand, uh, there are some downsides to it in that our models of the world can become fixed in, in narratives and um, our identities become um, very hard to change after we've lived with them for a while. And that can make it harder to take in new information or to deal with, with changing information. So that, that's kind of the downside. And I think it's important for us, um, for our sort of mental health, to be able to engage both in narrative meaning making and also in a kind of uh, narrative destruction to kind of break down our narratives and to experience the present moment without meaning making as well. I think both of those two mental processes are, are pretty important for our, our mental health. Yeah, thank you. We tend, we do tend to, we know that people can be pretty like, Pig-headed. Is that the phrase people use? Pig-headed? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, people can be, uh, you know, we can get stuck in our ways. And it's interesting to think about narrative as playing a role in that. I don't think we often do, but there are, there must be other things that play a role in it. How prominent is this part of the brain in making us this obstinate kind of way we can be? Yeah, it, it's pretty important for that. I and, mean, you know, I, I think this is all wrapped up with the use of identity. And um, our identity is the hardest thing to change. Um, and part of the reason is that it, it also serves a social function, that our identity and our, our narrative about who we are is not a narrative that exists in isolation. It's a narrative that we share with other people. And we, we kind of define ourselves in relation to the groups that we're a part of. And then those uh, bonds that are formed by shared belief serve to kind of keep all the beliefs in place. And one of their functions is to create group bonding. I mean, one of the things that's nice about being part of the group is that you kind of share a, a set of stories and a set of knowledge with other, other people. Um, but then if you try to change one of those core beliefs that are part of your social identity, you have all these social mechanisms that come into play to discourage you from doing that. Um, 
you know, we, we did some research on what's happening in the brain when people try to change their minds. And after our, our paper received some press, I started to hear stories from people um, out in the world who contacted me telling me about uh, what, what their lives were like when they tried to change their minds. And one of the most common experiences people recount is uh, when people have changed their minds about big things, things that are important to them. Um, so, for example, uh, our study was about politics, and I heard from one person who uh, had been a conservative uh, Republican here in the United States and worked in politics, and over the course of many years, changed his views and eventually became uh, more of a, a liberal person. But the social cost of doing this was enormous for him. He basically lost his job, his friends, um, his, his uh, partner in life. Um, and this is somebody who was willing to bear those costs in order to change his mind, but most of us aren't willing to bear those costs and just the threat of, you know, uh, how are my friends going to think about me if I, if I completely change my mind on this is something that serves as a motivation to keep your beliefs the same. So I, I think that's one of the ways in which this sort of collective narrative works against belief change. There's so many questions and I, questions that I like to ask. So uh, I have been spending a lot of time thinking about Western individualism recently. And I recently had a guest on who was really interesting in helping me trace the history of, of that sort of idea. But there's definitely this very alive idea in our culture right now about being true to yourself and being your authentic self. And does this in some way find a home or is it easy for it to be appealing to us precisely because it's sort of one of our cognitive def defaults, right? Something that's very easy for us to do is to sort of pinpoint our experience or ground our experience on our personal narrative. Or maybe it's because so many of our narratives have been stripped that finding this or whatever, developing this story of who we are is actually pretty, uh, it's a nice, it's about as close as we can get to like a firm ground these days. Yeah, I think that's an interesting idea. So it's interesting to think about you know, other points in history and in other cultures. There may have been more a dominant, coherent, shared narratives that everyone was attached to that provided a sort of firm collective ground. And as and many of those things came from religion, for sure. And as uh, people have been less attached to those religious stories, there is a kind of a void there that allows for a fractionation of the collective narrative. It's one of the things we're seeing really strongly in the United States right now that's maybe been exacerbated by social media as well in the way that information um, can become isolated into little bubbles. That there are a lot of these uh, stories and, and uh, narratives that are now shared instead of by everybody, but by little subgroups. Um, and that makes it difficult then to interact and to communicate with people who don't share the same sort mm -hmm. of identity. Well, actually, it's uh, one of the studies that you conducted uh, was helpful for me in making an argument uh, recently about social media because we have, it was like yesterday, uh, we, we have we have this idea, you mentioned these little bubbles, and we do have these pockets that exist, but there have also been studies demonstrating that people do encounter difference all the time on the internet, but I think the internet provides a way for us to encounter difference and then uh, become defensive, right? Because you've sort of demonstrated that when we encounter different beliefs, we don't actually open ourselves up to them. We can become even more closed off than we were before. Is that right? 
Yeah, that's right. So there's there's a bunch of things in there. First of all, um, there's the issue of like what what strategies do we use to um, keep our beliefs intact? And um, it's it's really worth thinking about it that way because there is a lot of motivated reasoning going on here. People are motivated to keep their beliefs intact, and we can talk a little bit later about why that is. But given that we're motivated to do that, I think the first thing that we try to do is to avoid information that. That counters our beliefs. And the internet is a double-edged sword in that regard, where yes, it can provide a venue for us to encounter things we disagree with. And there probably are people that enjoy getting in fights with their family on Facebook. I'm not like that. Um, but the internet also makes it easy to avoid information that challenges you if you don't want to find that information. You can pretty much keep yourself in, in a bubble. Um, but then when we do encounter information that counters our beliefs, we have a whole set of additional strategies that we use to keep our beliefs intact. And those involve things like um, shoring up our original beliefs and reminding ourselves why we believe what we believe, um, derogating the source of the new information, you know, um, making counter arguments. And these were the processes that, that we were studying in the brain. And one of the things we found um, that seems to be really important for this process is that emotion and feeling are, are a big part of it. So how we feel when we encounter new information is predictive of how open-minded we're going to be. When we looked into the brain, we saw that brain regions that we know support um, all kinds of negative feelings, like the insular cortex, which is a structure that's important for feelings of disgust, you know, the, the body originally um, giving us signals that some kind of food that we're encountering is to be avoided or should be rejected, is now being used to reject information that, that we think isn't good for us. And so this, these kind of um, cognitive processes reach down into our oldest biology and, and use a lot of these biological systems um, that uh, you might originally think are for the purposes of keeping our bodies alive, but the self is just an extension of the body, right? So the brain uses the same mechanisms to defend the psychological self that it uses to defend the, the physical body. Mm. And the psychological self needs protection from these things precisely because identity and stuff? Yeah, because it is part of the self. And, you know, the brain's primary purpose is to keep the self to keep us alive and um, if you think about how the brain defines the self it doesn't end at the physical um, there is this autobiographical self that um, becomes worth protecting as well and that's that's why i think we have to be really careful about letting information into that protected circle of selfhood i think of it like a, a big castle and as soon as you kind of you know open the open the doors and and wave something in it's very hard to get out um, it, there's just a lot of evidence that once we attach ourselves to information, it's, it's very difficult to get rid of. It's kind of like, um, you know, it's much easier to put weight on your body than it is to get, get off. And the, the same thing is, is true with information. But it does happen sometimes, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, for information that's not identity related, not all of our beliefs have to do with who we are. Um, in our studies, we've compared uh, things like political beliefs where people have uh, a very high stake in what they believe and its identity to other beliefs where people claim to believe things very strongly, but they don't have anything to do with their identity. So you know, everyone in our studies claims to believe that Thomas Edison invented the light bulb. But when we make arguments against that, people aren't so resistive. They basically accept them. 
maybe there's a few people out there that are like Edisonites that really, really care about that, but most people don't care as much. So yeah, there, there are things that we care more about than other things. And it's those things that we care most about that are hardest to change, of course. Um, do you, how often might one encounter, uh, say a subject in a study or something, a human in real life, uh, that will not so much enact these identity defensive mechanisms? There's a range. I think there's a lot of individual differences in our study. We find a range of people. We're doing some, um, some studies now looking at, um, what, what are the, what can we learn about the people who are more flexible when they counter information versus people that aren't flexible? I mean, it's very, very early in that work, but one of the things that we see is, for example, people who are more sensitive to emotions like disgust um, are the people who are less likely to change their minds when encountering this new information. So some of us, you know, we show people these pictures that are just absolutely awful. They're totally disgusting things. And we ask them how they feel. And some people just like can't even look at the screen because they're so disgusted by what we show them. Um, but other people are like, yeah, so what? That's a picture of a rotting dead body doesn't bother me. And, and that's a big individual difference. And we were finding that those people who are less sensitive to those feelings are the people who are um, more open-minded when it comes to the information content, presumably because they, they don't have those feelings pushing them away from the information. Now that raises the question for us also, can we learn to uh, be better at this? You know, if we learn to uh, respond to our feelings in a different way, to be mindful of them, to know how they influence us, can we become more open-minded? So for me, that's the most important question. Like, what can we actually do to put ourselves in a position to take in new information when it's appropriate to do so? I think it's really important for humanity that we can do that. Um, and if we can figure out ways that make us more open-minded, we'll, we'll all be better off for sure. I also happen to think that is right now currently one of our most important questions. And it's a part of why I'm doing what I'm doing. And I, I see, I see what I'm doing as, as in, in all my various advocacy platforms as a way to try to increase like the value or the cool factor of open-mindedness, uh, which is something that I actually came to believe was important when I interviewed a man named Eric Kruglansky who's a social psychologist um, and he works on extremism and de-radicalizing terrorists. And he has noticed and studied extensively in, in the field and the laboratory that people will become more flexible in their beliefs when they can feed, when they have a stronger sense of self-esteem. Mm -hmm. And so a part of that is also if your culture really values open-mindedness, then you may work hard to also value open-mindedness such that like it, it sort of can counterbalance the, you know, counterbalance the tendency to close yourself off because then you're like achieving this, this cool, um, this cool factor. But I find it very interesting how much like your work and his work, which are in two totally different fields, have found this pressure point of identity. And he has been able to say, actually, if we can build up self-esteem in a different way, then we might be able to create space for people to be a little bit, to be a little bit more flexible. 
I think that's, yeah, so I'm familiar with that work. I think it's great. And um, yeah, I like the idea that if you kind of give yourself some kind of uh, identity cushion mm. um, that you can then sort of feel less threatened when, when things do challenge your identity. I think that's a, that's a really promising way to go. Um, I, I wish there was a way for us to just um, become less attached to our identities in general. And I think, you know, one, one potential mechanism for that is uh, meditation. There, there are a lot of meditative practices, um, like mindfulness meditation, for example, that allow us to practice modes of non-narrative thought. And when we do that, we kind of suppress the, the brain systems that are involved in that kind of interpretive narrative interpretive process that are also involved in our self and our identity. And if we can uh, become more skilled at um, turning that dial down a little bit, that might also be something that helps. That's that's very interesting because meditation is very trendy right now, but you don't hear a lot of people talking about how they want to get distance from narrative, right? Um, and so, what is it that's about this like non-narrative this practice? Like, is there some different kind of meditation or some different way of practicing contemplatively that would lead to this as opposed to what you know other forms of practice? I think most of the forms of meditation, I mean, there are, there are so many different forms of med- meditative practice, but I think most of them, even though they, they don't talk about it this way, um, that, that is what they're doing. When you, when you focus on the present moment and you, um, when your goal is to allow the thoughts to arise without interpreting them, you're essentially practicing a form of non-narrative thought. And we've been studying um, Zen practitioners who are very good at this, and we're, we're trying to do some brain imaging to... Um, see what's happening in the brain during those moments when people have their, their most non, non-narrative experiences. Um, and, you know, a lot of the work on meditation has shown already that you, you do often see suppression of uh, certain brain networks. In particular, I'm thinking of the default mode network. This is a, a brain network that's active when people are doing mind wandering um, and also when people are, are thinking about stories. Um, and in long-term meditators, you see less activity in this default mode network. Um, because I think there is a more of a, a present focus. You know, narrative is something that takes you away from, from the present moment. You're, you're traveling through, through time. You're going to the past or the future, and it's kind of part of the fun of, of the imaginative experience of, of narratives. And so you can kind of think of this kind of mental time travel as a, as a counterpoint to, to present-orientedness. And I think there is this factor, <clears throat> this side benefit of meditation, that when you become more present-focused and you're not constantly engaging in narrative thought. It provides a little bit of space for the narrative to dissolve a little bit and loose, loosen its, its connections. And in those, those loose moments <clears throat> um, that, that might provide the, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the, the time when, when our narratives are more flexible. Mm. So the idea is that in these moments of practice, when you're intentionally practicing being present, say, uh, can then sort of, I don't want to use the language of wiring. I almost said rewire can help provide you you and your body and your brain with a way of sort of filtering this more into your regular experience. Yeah, it does that. But also just, I think even momentarily stepping outside of, of your narrative helps because then you see it with a different perspective when you come back into it. You know, it's like it's like traveling when you travel to another country and that, that allows you to realize all the things you've been sort of taking for taking for granted while you were at home. Um, if, if you do the same thing with your, your mind by just 
every once in a while stepping outside of your kind of story of what's going on, I think you have a, a better perspective on it. Mm. Are there, okay, so are there other ways of sort of reducing the impact or the strength of this narrative way of thinking, or is this sort of like humanity's hope, right? Uh, is meditation the thing that we have, or are there other avenues that are being explored? I don't know. I think, <clears throat> I think, um, <clears throat> I think if there, I think any, any technique you use for reorienting towards the present moment probably would be called meditation. So mm -hmm. yeah, I think that's, that's, that's the main thing. Um, in terms of getting yourself out of narrative thought in general. I mean, they're, they're hopefully, <clears throat> excuse me, I've got something stuck in my throat there. Hopefully there are other things we can do to yeah. um, keep us more flexible in general and to allow us to keep our narratives as, um, you know, our models of the world as provisional models that can be updated with new information. I think that's the important thing. Yeah, I, I agree. Would Would you count... Uh, activities that sort of release thought entirely say you're in the like psychological state of flow would you count that as something that's not narrative yeah i would and so that's a good point so active states where people are involved in things like sports or music are are um, also potentially um, doing that for you hmm. although um, we, we have an interest in, in music here at the brain and creativity institute we have a big project looking at brain and music and one of our graduate students is looking at the neural dynamics that that happen while people listen to long pieces of music and in a lot of ways listen you know playing music is one thing that can really bring you that present orientedness listening to a piece of music might actually be similar to listening to stories and that there's kind of a um an ebb and flow and a dynamic there of expectation and release that might be engaging the same kind of narrative mechanisms in it might a slightly different way. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting. Are you involved in the in the studies on music personally, or is that? Yeah, a little bit. I, I um, I am an amateur musician myself. I like to play music, um, and I help out with some of the brain imaging side of that. Um, but yeah, we've been we've been doing some brain imaging with story people listening to stories, podcasts actually. Um, not not podcasts like this that are conversations, but more where people tell stories, long form stories, and trying to untangle the different um, uh, dynamics, the different network dynamics in the brain when people listen to stories. And uh, definitely interested in the parallels between what we find there and listening to stories and what we find when people are listening to music. Mm. Have you? Uh, I find it very interesting the ways in which we have leveraged technology to sort of return to forms of uh, communication or, or media consumption that we might have hundreds or thousands of years ago that we kind of, we kind of let go of. Right. And the minute you mentioned podcasts, I thought of uh, when people used to listen to the radio, right. And sit around the radio together. And so is there a sense in which this sort of audio apprehension of stories could be something that is deeply human in, in the wide variety of ways, just because of our long history of. Right. Absolutely. So if, if we did get back much further than uh, radio, um, there are some uh, really cool anthropological studies that have come out recently of um, hunter gatherer societies in, in Africa and looking at what happens. So apparently, you know, the introduction of fire to society was, was a, was an important um, 
moment in in uh, giving us this kind of experience because when you kind of extend the day beyond times when there is light and when there's light out, it's very easy to be task oriented, to just deal with the stuff that's in front of you and do what you have to do. Um, but when night falls and it becomes dark and we're all sitting around a fire together and all of the external stimulation has disappeared, um, that's the time when you're free to do mental time travel when there isn't anything drawing you to the present moment anymore. And that is the time when people tell stories and engage in these kinds of processes. So if you look at existing hunter-gatherer tribes and you uh, analyze the kind of conversations and, and language that they use during the day versus at night when sitting around the fire, you can see that during the day it all has to do with practicalities of um, trade and business and dealing with um, conflict. Um, but as soon as it becomes night and people are on the fire, it becomes almost all narrative. People are just telling stories. And I think that is something that's, that's deep in our history and probably why uh, we're, we enjoy so much a uh, uh, situation like being in the movie theater where we're all sitting in the dark together experiencing some kind of a story together. Mm. I never thought about a movie theater being like ancient. I spent a fair amount of time thinking about ancient storytelling, but I never thought about movies in that way. I hate going. Yeah, you know, if, if you hate going to the movies. I do. I hate Whoa. It. I, I don't know if I ever heard anyone say that. I, I, there are so, like every reason that you could possibly have to hate going to the movies. I hate it. Um, Not even the popcorn? Oh, God. No. And oh, you can wow. hear people chewing it. <laughs> Man. Yeah, well, that's like that's hell on earth for me. Well, you've, maybe you can go as an anthropologist now. Just watch people's faces <laughs> with the light flickering on their faces, and you can um, imagine it's like an ancient fire. Yeah, I, that would probably that would probably be better for me. Um, yeah, that's that's very interesting, and also, of course, why we like doing things like sitting around fires, right? Yeah, for um, for a more uh, concrete example. So I wanted to. Um, I wanted to ask your opinion. We touched on this briefly a little bit ago and I let it go on the relationship between thoughts and feelings, right? Um, Cause we talk a lot in, when we're talking about meditation in terms of getting this in from our thoughts. Uh, but I also uh, am a pretty big believer in like a very uh, intertwined relationship between thought and feeling. Um, and I happen to have read every book by Antonio Damasio. Uh, and, and so I'm wondering how this sort of, uh, what you think of that relationship and how that plays into what you're researching. Yeah, I think it's very important. And I, I totally agree with you. I think intertwined is probably the right word there because there is almost no thought that we have that isn't also accompanied by some kind of a feeling. Um, and if you, if you, anytime you try to separate cognition from emotion it's always an artificial separation you can never really carve one out without the other um you know you have even, even things you think of as purely rational cognitive thought processes things like um I know, deciding if something is true based on evidence. At some point, um, intuitive feeling about whether what you're uh, considering is right or not is going to come to you, some feelings of certainty. Um, and, you know, feelings, if you think about what feelings are, feelings are the mental representations, the conscious men mental representations of what's going on in our bodies, right? Um, and... This is the basic process of life. 
this is the basic process of biology that our, our body has of regulating the stuff going on inside our bodies and, and feelings are the sort of conscious projection of that process. And so there's a tremendous amount of intelligence in there. Um, and all of our cognition was built as a direct outgrowth of those processes. It, 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 they aren't separate from it. I think it's, it's easy in the age of artificial intelligence and computer metaphors to think of ourselves as being like computers and our, our thoughts and language as being really abstract like computers, but really are just thin, uh, thin layers built on top of this whole biological system for emotion and feeling that we have. Um, so it's very important. And, you know, we, we see that in almost everything that we study, partly because it's one of our main focuses here. Um, but, you know, when we study uh, our, our belief change, again, you know, it is the brain structures that are responsible for emotion and feeling, the amygdala and the insula that, that predict belief change, which you might think of as a rational process. We're dealing with information processing of belief. Um, but even that is tied to, to the process of feeling. So I totally agree with you. They're completely intertwined. You can't have one without the other. If you lose uh, your feelings, you know, people, people who have brain damage to parts of the brain that are important for feeling uh, make terrible decisions. It doesn't make us, doesn't turn us into hyper rational computers. It turns us into um, something much messier. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, you can't have one without the other. Yeah, and I, I think culturally, we tend to understand that thoughts can give rise to feelings, right? You have a, a idea, and then you can get really excited or nervous or whatever. Uh, but it, it's also very important to understand, I think this is less talked about, that feelings in their way can also give rise to thoughts. And, and this is, I think, something that can also be a part of this attempt to escape narrative cognition, right, is sort of unhooking that process of all of these feelings continually giving rise to narratives that can be really damaging. Absolutely. Yeah. You have that feedback cycle there and uh, sort of dissecting that, that feedback cycle and making it less automatic is, is one of the goals of meditation, but also of cognitive behavioral therapy, right? Um, learning how to, um, to unhook your automatic thought processes that happen as a result of feeling certain ways can, can be very important. Sure. Yeah. So you mentioned CBT or the brain is in, is kind of habitual, isn't it? Like it, it forms habits, but they can be broken, right? That's the whole purpose of that kind of therapy. They can be broken, but it's not easy. Yeah. Habits have their own sort of momentum to them. Um, and it's, it's very, the brain is very prone to habitual kinds of behaviors and thoughts. Um, but yeah, we can retrain ourselves the same way we train ourselves to get the habits in the first place. We can retrain ourselves to uh, get out of them. And even the most difficult habits, things like addictions can be broken. It just takes more effort and, and the right kind of approach. Uh, and is, is this, is this a part of the brain? Is this related at all to the same kind of stability of narrative in world and self? Uh, you mentioned earlier the brain, I think, trying to keep us safe or something. Um, what is it that the brain is trying to do there, right? Is it trying to keep our universes stable? Is that why we're so habitual? I think there are a lot of reasons why we're habitual. Part of it just has to do with the fact that, um, you know, if you think about reward systems in the brain, that the brain has learned how to predict what's going to be rewarding. And you have these um, sort of incentive feedback systems that um, uh, reinforce different behaviors. And then they become repeated because they produce that reinforcement originally. Um, so because that system is so good at, uh, 
causing us to repeat behaviors that are good for us or were once good for us, like, you know, finding sugar, um, that system can get out of control, uh, especially in, in a world that provides those things for us very easily. Um, but then there is this, this narrative layer that, that strives for consistency. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, I like to, when thinking about this, I remind myself, myself of, of some of the um, uh, examples of brain damage where <clears throat> you can really see this process at work and this narrative uh, consistency drive that the brain has. Um, one of them is the case of certain kinds of amnesia where people can't remember what happened. Um, and with this kind of amnesia, instead of just saying, you know, I don't, I don't know what happened yesterday because I can't remember, the brain confabulates. It makes up a story and fills in the gaps and, and tries to provide some sort of consistent consistent story. Uh, we also see this in um, split brain patients. This is one of the things I studied early, early in my career is the split brain. These are um, people who, for the treatment of really severe epilepsy, had the two sides of their brains surgically separated. And the left hemisphere, which is very verbal and can talk, um, is typically the um, side of the brain you're interacting with when you interact with one of these people. Um, but there's ways of sending information to uh, the right hemisphere. And then in a lot of ways, there's two independent consciousnesses there. And what you see in that situation is that the left hemisphere has to make sense of things that are happening in the body that it's not aware of because it doesn't have direct access to the right hemisphere. And so it's constantly interpreting and making up stories. And um, you, you really see that drive for consistency. Um, Michael Gazaniga, who studied the split brain, had this idea of the left hemisphere specifically as a sort of interpreter that's constantly doing this interpretation process. I don't think it's just the left hemisphere that's doing that. I think it um, involves more of the brain and it's more um, a distributed process throughout the whole brain. Um, but those are uh, cases that really remind us how strong this drive is to maintain some kind of consistent interpretation of the world. Mm. And the people to whom this happens don't know, right? Don't necessarily know that there's a competing dialogue happening in their head. Well, you have to be careful about how you talk about it. I know. When I, when, I, when, <laughs> when, you, when you say they, well, there's really two, there's really two of, of them to be uh, speaking about. So the, the left hemisphere may not be aware of some things that the right hemisphere is aware of, and the right hemisphere may not be aware of some things that the left hemisphere is aware of. But, you know, most, most of those patients were aware that they had all of them were aware that they had a split brain operation and they were very aware of their circumstance and conscious of it um, to the point where they would often invent ways of getting information back and forth between the two hemispheres to um, mess with our experiments. Uh, so, you know, one of the main ways you do these experiments is you flash stimuli to one side of the screen or the other because the, the visual fields feed into the different hemispheres. Um, so if you flash them to the left side of the screen, it goes to the right hemisphere. And if you ask them what they saw, they didn't see anything. They say they didn't see anything because it's the left hemisphere that's speaking. But we had a patient who would then take his uh, right hand or his left hand, uh, which is controlled by the left hemisphere, and he would draw on the back of his right hand to try to communicate the answer to the right hemisphere, basically cheating. It's very sneaky, yeah. Very sneaky, but very clever, and and shows a uh, a conscious awareness of the disconnection syndrome. So mm. definitely had that. Right, and so this sort of illuminates for us 
something that could be a very comforting or could be a very discomforting thought, which is that our conscious experience is highly, A, it's highly contingent on our physical reality, and B, it's not necessarily consistent in the sense that it permanently exists all of the time, right? Like uh, we, in a, in a very real sense, don't really exist. These yeah, identities we're no. building don't really exist. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the, the self is definitely an illusion that the brain puts together and, and presents to us. And, um, you know, I think that's interesting that a lot of the, the meditative traditions have also come to that conclusion. Um, that the self is an illusion or something to be seen as an illusion. And um, that makes a lot of sense if you think about the process of meditation as this kind of anti-narrative uh, process that, that, that does temporarily dissolve the self-narrative. Mm. Uh, and right. So this is actually something that has been arrived at by a variety of religious traditions throughout the world and does have some sort of, um, implication right this is a fact that people can use spiritually i think if many spiritual traditions are actually built on fighting the premise right but it can also be leveraged in a way that helps people um which is probably why meditation is is so prominent in so many strands of religious practice uh, yeah absolutely i think there's a um, a spiritual utility in seeing the self as a as an illusion because the self is the, the self um it, what, involves making the distinction between you and everything else, right? And the important part of the spiritual experience is experiencing the connection between you and everything else. And so losing that experience um, of the boundaries of what you are, both physically and psychologically, um, can move you a long way towards having that experience and the recognition that you are, are connected with everything else and with everyone else. Mm -hmm. uh, and so... I want to poke at religion a little bit and then I'll let you go. Is there, uh, so obviously religion is, is very diverse and I don't even know most scholars of religion are like, I don't even know what religion is anyway. Um, I don't know what religion is anyway, but, um, we do have a, some colloquial senses and we tend to identify some beliefs as religious and, and some as not. Uh, and I'm wondering if in these sorts of ways that you're studying narrative and the way that we construct ourselves, are there differences between religious beliefs and, and non-religious beliefs and how they in, interact with our identity? Uh, there can be. I mean, to the extent that, that uh, religious beliefs tend to um, sneak into people's identities. So there, there are people who have religious beliefs that um, don't identify with them, right? Um, but we, we did a, a brain imaging study of religious beliefs some time ago where we looked at um, people who were fundamentalist Christians and people who were, um, I guess the word devout seems wrong when describing atheists, but they were strict atheists. Uh, and we looked at what was happening in their brains when they encountered their religious beliefs uh, beliefs concerning religion and beliefs not current concerning religion. So, you know, we're asking the question, is, is there something different about the way a religious person believes that Jesus is the son of God? Um, is there something different about that from the way an atheist believes that Jesus is not the son of God and it's just some guy? Um, and we, we really found uh, very little difference at all that, uh, you know, for a Christian and for an atheist, believing was believing. Um, mm. specifically 
for these beliefs concerning religion, because the atheists, even though they didn't believe the same propositions as the religious people, the topic was still self-identifying for them, right? Like they, these are people who define themselves by the lack of belief about that topic. And so it's still a very important belief and, and believing versus not believing mm. is the same regardless of the content of those beliefs. Um, we did find also that both groups, when thinking about religious topics, um, engaged emotional processes in the brain uh, compared to when they were thinking about non-religious topics. Um, so, yeah, I think religion is one of these special categories that um, tends to invoke identity and tends to be important to people. Um, but, it, but it needn't be. I mean, there are uh, certainly aspects of religion that have to do with what we were just talking about, the dissolution itself and the connection with um, that which is outside of you that don't involve having sort of propositional fixed beliefs. I, I guess I would mm -hmm. classify those things more as spirituality or trying to separate it from religion. Um, yeah, I'm curious, what, what is your, uh, so you're studying religion. What is your, what is your main focus with that? And what are, what are you looking into? Uh, so I actually study, uh, ways in which you could say people have religious relationships with science. Hmm. And so I found that paper very interesting and was curious if you had also, or had thought about, um, what, the imaging might look like if um, a belief that was really important related to science was, or something was presented to somebody who was an atheist, right? Like if you take Richard Dawkins and you give him a belief, like, you know, the rainbow is made out of raindrops, you know, for example, would he feel really, you know, would his pattern of response show up similarly, right? To a religious person's pattern of, uh, something about Jesus or something, you know, uh, I, so I ended up, I just, I draw affective and emotional parallels using things like effective neuroscience, uh, between people's experiences of science and people's experiences of religion. Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting idea. I mean, I think that, um, certainly scientists are not, are, are scientists are humans as well, and they're not immune. We're not immune to, um, these processes and, and um, particularly with the way that science is uh, set up as a career nowadays, um, there is motivation to have attachment to one's ideas in the sense that, um, you know, in order to uh, push them and, and kind of have them win in, in the marketplace of ideas, you have to uh, be devoted to them in, in a certain way. Um, but I, I guess the, beyond the sort of personal response to the beliefs, the hope is just that the process of science uh, when implemented by the culture at large um, doesn't produce the same kind of fixedness that, that religious belief does. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's fascinating. There has, have also been really interesting books on science fiction and religious themes in science fiction. And so I am not necessarily so much it so happens that I look at scientists in my dissertation, but um, I'm also just much more interested in how people make sense of things and construct their narratives. And I personally grew up in a home that hated religion. And so I grew up worshiping people like Carl Sagan and Richard Dawkins and, and the like, uh, and, and constructed my world and my meaning and my way of asking questions around that. And so I just basically turned my life into my dissertation, which I think is what everybody does. Mm -hmm. well, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. yeah. a nice way to do it. Right. It's, it's, yeah, it's a way to do it. But, uh, but I also 
think I was seeking this answer or wait first I was seeking an answer to big existential questions and then I was like wait I have to take a step back and understand why these existential questions are so important to me in the first place which is how I ended up looking at this more broadly cultural you know question of how are people making sense of things what is it about us that drives us to make sense of things and landing um, as it so happens on answers uh, very similar to yours although much less scientific uh, (laughs) Um, well, I, I so I just I just thought of uh, something that we didn't talk about in relation to um, you, you were asking earlier, sort of what the methods are for okay. um, re- reducing the narrative process. And we talked about meditation as one, but I think the other there are also neurochemical things that, that do it as well. And uh, I'm thinking particularly of, of psychedelics um, that seem to um, help in reducing the influence of this kind of top-down process to give people a more connected experience that doesn't have to do with their, their self-narrative. Mm. I can neither confirm nor deny whether I have empirical data to support what you just <laughs> said. <laughs> I uh, have some. Oh, okay, great. Um, yeah, so yes, yeah, drugs obviously are, are very important, and I think that that's really interesting, and uh, we shall see. We shall see how this whole... Uh, war on drugs and and whatever plays out um, in the coming years, it will be interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, I will. Uh, I'll let you go now. I promised. Cool. Let you go by this time. Um, this has been really fantastic. I think people are going to find it really valuable, uh, and it's very very nice to um, hear hear more about hear more about the brain in a way that's really thoughtful. So um, thank you. Jonah. Of course. Thank thank you for having me on. It was uh, it was a good conversation for sure. And uh, good luck with everything you're working on. <laughs> yeah, thank you. And um, for everybody listening, uh, Jonas, do you have somewhere or something that people should follow or look uh, at? You can follow me on Twitter. I, I don't say um, that much, but I'm at Jonas underscore Kaplan. Lovely. And I am everywhere and everybody knows it. You know how to find me. Um, <laughs> so uh, thank you, everybody, so much for listening. And thank you again, Jonas. Um, and we'll be back next week. Thank you.